0: Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL 103.9 FM, 1450 AM, and of course, 101.9 in Manchester, our newest station, and boy, are we proud of it. And for all of our radio listeners, we are available on podcast in the Capital Close-Up podcast feed, and we hope that you will subscribe. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am joined, as always, by two-term Former Democratic Congressman Paul Hodes and columnist, analyst, political consultant Alicia Preston. You will have noticed, if you are a longtime listener to this show, that I am not Ken Kale. For the last two shows, I have been sitting in for our longtime and long suffering host, Ken Kale. He is a radio legend and he is in so much demand that he is leaving us. We're very sad to announce that Ken is not just taking an extended break in mourning for his benighted Celtics who seem to have learned the lesson of how to fold faster than Superman on laundry day in the fourth quarter of games. It's not just that he's bummed out about sports. He actually is such a radio legend in all seriousness that he has been asked by WKXL to expand what he does. He's taking on all kinds of new shows. Plus he has his sports broadcasting responsibilities. And so something had to give. And we, Paul Hodes, Alicia Preston and I, are the thing that had to give. We're very sad about it. We may inveigle him back for occasional guest appearances. We're all looking forward to appearing on his shows from time to time. And we wish him Godspeed and much success in all of his new broadcasting efforts. So I wanna start off the show by asking our Alicia Preston, how's it going? I understand there was something of a
1: kerfuffle at your house. Well, it wasn't at my house, it was in my town. Oh, But yes, I, I created havoc. I, I so oh, we love we this- love
2: <laughs> havoc, havoc <laughs> are us
1: havoc are us. So we have a select person in town who is very vocally doesn't believe the results of the November election, started a petition to get rid of machine counting in our town. And it's been a thing. And she and some friends hold signs in our downtown business district every Saturday, which is upsetting the business people because people aren't shopping. It's upsetting their business on you know, foot traffic and whatnot. And they took it to a new level and have expletives on their signs like F word Joe Biden and things like that. Well, I took umbrage to that because it is our downtown. It is the route to our schools. The local businesses don't want it there because people aren't shopping and it's very small. So I wrote a column I agree that they have free speech, but I simply pointed out that I think it is the behavior of a Neanderthal, which is a pre-intellect arcane human, to be so rude, holding foul language signs in a downtown square on a Saturday when kids are headed to their baseball games. It was well-received, except by them, and I feel like I've made it in life because I got included in their protests. They had signs neanderthals have free speech too they took my column and went with it and made a little protest out of it and i just feel like you kind of made it somewhere in life if people spend the effort to protest you or anything you've done
2: the, the cha- this the segment problem. is
0: brought to you by the way by our sponsor geico and the geico caveman alicia preston's <laughs> columns so simple even a caveman could protest them Yes, yeah, uh, Paul. Sorry.
2: It's okay. Because the real thing is, Alicia, that you've been outed as a socialist. You are a, a socialist Marxist. That's your problem. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? You have crossed the line in Northampton, New Hampshire.
1: Hampton, not North.
2: Oh, Hampton. Okay. Yes. Well, there you go. If it was Northampton, maybe they'd be a little more polite. But Well,
0: but, their socialism really sells, let me tell you. Yeah,
2: I, you know, I agree. If you, if you unfroze a Neanderthal, that Neanderthal person, the person would say, I have rights, too. And, um, you know, so,
0: scientists have actually discovered that we have an average of 2% Neanderthal DNA in all of us. And um, maybe it's a little bit higher in some than others. Speaking of people who look particularly unkempt and like they may have just crawled out of a cave and perhaps should crawl back into one. Steve Bannon, the former presidential advisor is in the news this week because he has been indicted. He will surrender as we record this today, Monday afternoon to law enforcement and have a court hearing today. I would like to hear if anyone is unhappy about this development and in all seriousness, is it meaningful? Is this is this really relevant, or is this just, you know, huh, that's interesting?
2: It's a two way street. Uh, yes, it's important. Yes, it's relevant, and uh, it's critical for Congress to uphold its right to have documents and appearances by the people it subpoenas. If we're going to preserve the balance, a semblance of a balance of power in a democracy where increasingly. An imperial presidency of both parties, by the way, have chipped away at um, the legislative power. That's been happening for years and years. Um, it's a bipartisan. It's a bipartisan effort. Uh, it, in some ways, it comes to an a, an illogical conclusion with the former president Trump asserting executive privilege, which he no longer has. Um, and demanding that his minions, Banyan and Mark Meadows, not comply with the congressional subpoena. So it's about time somebody drew a line in the sand. That seems to be a reasonable uh, time to do it. Um, There are others who uh, are loyal to Trump who appeared before the committee and simply said, here's my name, rank, and serial number, and thank you very much, I assert my Fifth Amendment rights uh, against self-incrimination, which is virtually um, the same as saying I'm not showing up, but at least it shows respect for the committee, it shows respect for the balance of power, it invokes the constitutional right that is their right. Steve Bannon is really, you know, I mean, he's out to create martyrdom, and right-wing Twitter fodder. I mean, that's really what he wants. So when I said it's a two-way street, uh, the good news is the committee put its foot down. The DOJ responded quickly. Bannon will be indicted if he doesn't. If he's not forthcoming, he'll end up in jail. People remember, people have gone to jail for 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 years um, for criminal uh, contempt my recollection is and I forget the name and exactly the situation. But about was it two decades ago, uh, uh, somebody went to jail for contempt of Congress for 18 months. So Bannon may, you know, I mean, he'll be forced to have a haircut. Um, They probably will require him to shave. They may not allow him on Twitter. Um, He will not have a credit card expense account to go to fancy restaurants. He will hopefully languish in a rat infested cell until he shows up and says, I assert my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So it's important. It's a big deal. Um, And Mark Meadows is next.
1: Well, let me start by saying, and I guess it's case by case, I've always been uneasy with the idea that Congress can haul a private citizen before it. It just seems, and I know they're allowed, and I know they've done it, and it's not a partisan thing. It's just that that level of power and pressure of a government, I just don't like. That being said, I don't care about Steve Bannon. Um, I do care about some of the words he said as he arrived to turn himself into the FBI today. He said to the press outside in a scrum, uh, we're taking down the Biden regime. Now, look, I am not a Biden supporter. I think he has done a very poor job as president, as a matter of fact, and I didn't think he'd be as bad as he is. But what's all this regime talk everyone talks about? It's This is not what a regime is. If I don't like a bill, that doesn't make him a regime. And I think that level of rhetoric is actually dangerous because Bannon has followers. This is the kind of rhetoric that led to January 6th to begin with. This is the kind of rhetoric that, and I know we're talking about this later, is leading to death threats being called in and sent in to congressmen and women who disagree with, you know, the person disagrees. Agrees with their vote on a bill that level of rhetoric is very dangerous when you have a man who for whatever reason has a cult-like following and he seems to be using today uh he was smirking and smiling on the way in and he seems to be using today to advance his personal agenda i actually think first of all to paul's point him being forced to get a haircut and a shave is a fantastic idea but does anyone think? like I looked at these charges he's going to get if he goes to jail minimum, of, if he's convicted minimum of 60 days maximum of two years. Does anyone not think that Bannon would revel in it. It's one of the few ways he will be a perpetual cult hero. And he's not going to get the two years. So he goes and spends 90 days in jail. And he his cult following just increases and explodes. And he uses it to make himself relevant, because I don't think he's as relevant yet as he thinks he is. And I think he is just kind of laughing all the way because it's going to be to the bank, no matter whether he's convicted or not.
0: Well, Paul, you're the former attorney in the bunch here. Is it possible, given how ham handed, Steve Bannon's legal team's response has been to the subpoenas. And you can read about this on Politico, just just how poor from a legal standpoint the responses have been. Is it is it too cute by half? Is this is this an attempt at an intentional martyrdom for fundraising and relevance purposes?
2: Oh, oh, what an imagination you have. Matt Robison, what an imagination! Run wild here on radio. If only our listeners could see you smiling broadly uh, at my little quip. The answer, yeah, that's is, because
0: in journalism, that's that's what's called a non denial denial. There, Congressman.
2: Yeah, a non denial denial. <laughs> the answer is you betcha, you betcha, you betcha, um, and I'll say it once more time, Steve, you betcha. Bannon. Um, Yeah, I mean, he's just he wants to play it for all it's worth. And and who knows? I mean, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the ham handed uh, approach will earn him some extra time. Maybe it'll be on the upper end of that uh, 60 days to two years as a result of not only the contempt, but magnifying the contempt. The only thing I want to say about uh, the point that Alicia made about um, uh, violent rhetoric is that nobody is spared from this. I, I did an interview today uh, with New Hampshire Executive Counselor Cindy Warmington on Capital Close-Up, um, which uh, will be aired today and podcast. And she, an executive counselor in New Hampshire, uh, has had security concerns because of threats of violence um, against her. So the rhetoric of the right which is pushing the regime talk the steal sto- the stolen election talk the we're going to take it down talk is is having serious consequences all across the country including in New Hampshire and whether we disagree or not in po- in politics we've got to figure out a way that that's got to stop and there's got to be a, a really strong response that From law enforcement, um, from citizens, we all ought to be talking about it because uh, we're posing as citizens a threat to our democracy uh, by not taking action personally to do something about it.
0: Alicia, I want to follow up on that point because you raised a few minutes ago the idea that there is a connection here in tone and and the types of language choices that people like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump make between what we saw in the insurrection and the outbreak of death threats and threats of violence and really extreme rhetoric, and it goes beyond rhetoric; it goes to an actual. I mean, th- these are criminal actions when you call up a public official, and threaten to kill their family. And that's what we're seeing in the wake of 13 Republicans in the House voting in favor of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now, this is a vote, as you said on our show last week, that's in favor of repairing roads and bridges, things that regular Americans want, and that Donald Trump himself spent four years saying were a top priority for him. And when it finally comes to a vote, you have the self-same Donald Trump calling out for these Republicans to be shunned from the party, to be kicked out of the party. Why? Because in some way, they're giving some political win to Democrats, notwithstanding that what they're really giving is a win to Americans. They're trying to do something good with being in public office. The point is that it's apostasy. It is, it is some kind of... Uh, uh, it's some kind of a a mark, a a blow against being a Republican to vote for anything that the Democrats have put forward. And the result is an outbreak of, of threats and uh, violence against office holders and Republican on Republican threats. So Alicia, what do you make of this? Is this, is this a problem more endemic to the Republican party? Is this, is this a Trump effect? Is this, Something kind of the lid being ripped off of something that's across our politics. What is going on?
1: Well, first, I mean, right now we see it as tending to be the far right that's doing these things. But I assure you, when Donald Trump was president, because I was a Republican, I'd make a comment and got my share of hate filled rhetoric spewed at me from the left, but I I think it's less political than we think it is. My mother used to drill into us growing up. It was one of her most important lessons that hate consumes the hater. Now she was a very intellectual woman and she would use Shakespearean tragedies to demonstrate his writing showed us that hate consumes the hater, not the hated. And when I say she drilled into me, it was one of the most important lessons she felt to have so that you don't feel hate in your heart. We have so much hate in this country and it has been drilled, and it has been supported, and it has been promoted as acceptable. And now it is hate towards someone who is of a different political party, which I just find amazing. I mean, I think the emotion of hate can be reserved for someone who harmed your child or Osama bin Laden, if you're going to experience hate. But to have an emotion as strong as hatred to be implemented on something which is as benign, if you look at the You know circle of life as politics i find dumbfounding but i think that's what's behind it hatred has been stoked hatred of races have been stoked, stoked gender stoked political party stoked and here we are it's consuming the people that are doing it enough that they're irrational i mean the guy that called up um the the congressman andrew gabarino he's been arrested he's a long island guy who's been arrested for threatening to kill him over an infrastructure bill is a retired railroad worker. And that is just ironic to an extreme. And it shows people aren't looking or thinking rationally. They're just full of hate and expressing it. And somewhere along the last five, 10 years, people have said that hatred's okay because I'm going to hate right along with you. We'll hate together. And here we are, and it's not a good place.
0: Paul. I mean, it, it, I'm I'm not sure that I can add a lot to that, um, besides bemoaning it. I mean, it it is it's it's sort of dumbfounding and depressing.
2: Yeah, you know, at, look, my colleague Gabby Giffords was gunned down um, at a at a at an event she was at um, when 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 I was in Congress. Uh, we had to deal with security issues. Um, that were not nearly at the volume level or seriousness that uh, we're seeing now for members of Congress and people who are elected to, frankly, what is what are relatively mundane positions like executive counselor in New Hampshire. Um, so four years of Donald Trump um, have stoked a fire that I think really began, we, we started seeing it. Back in 2008, nine, uh, when Barack Obama was elected and um, he gave a State of the Union address and uh, a representative Republican shouted, you lie. Um, And while that was a very minor, you know, it was minor. And when the mob surrounded the Capitol, when we voted for health care, they didn't uh, they didn't act violently. They were a mob waving, don't tread on me, et cetera, et cetera. That has, that, that has grown. And um, Trump stoked the divide. He lit the flame. And this country has, 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 has been set on fire.
0: Well, I if just I want can... to point out that 10 years ago, during that healthcare debate, you, Paul Hodes, when you were in Congress, got protesters at your, at your home, at the end of your driveway. And your political team at the time advised you, you know, here's what you do to diffuse the situation. Let's get some Dunkin' Donuts and some coffee and let's bring it out to them. And you did. You, you walked out, you met with them, you talked, you handed out donuts. I'm not saying that there was no such thing as threats or political violence. We actually had that in your office. We we had to work with the Capitol Police. We had to work with the Concord Police. We were very aware that, you know, there, there were crazy people out out there, and they were going to behave in ways that went beyond the pale. But that was still a time in politics as recently as 10 years ago where the people on your team could advise you, yeah, go out and meet with these folks. Let's have a conversation. In no way, as a political advisor, would I say the same thing today. And I think that's really a marker of where we've gotten to is that you can't, you can't. In with in all with a straight face and with an expectation of safety, go out and meet and talk to people who are protesting a policy, because you don't know what's going to come of it. What do we have next on the? Do- oh no, oh no. Actually, no. <laughs> are I'm you, sorry, folks. You I've lied. Got another controversial topic to bring up with you. So, he lied. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I lied. I lied. The the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals blocked the administration's Vaccine or test requirement, meaning if you have, if your private business, you have 100 or more employees, you must ensure that they have gotten vaccinated or you must ensure that they are tested regularly in order for them to maintain employment. This is a mandate from the Biden administration, and the courts have now extended a block on it. My question is Does this still matter, given where we are politically and in the course of trying to control? the pandemic. Is the Biden administration's vaccine mandate still a really relevant piece of policy? Alicia Preston, what do you think?
1: It's relevant because A, it's still in the courts and B, it's going to be brought up in 2022 and 2024 elections. But look, I'm I'm happy with what the courts are doing. I don't believe it's the federal government's job to do a vaccine mandate on a private business like this. That is not to say I do not think everyone should get vaccinated. I'm a huge promoter of the vaccine. I actually just got my booster shot the other day, by the way, easier than the first two. I will promote getting the vaccine all day long. I just don't think it's the right of the federal government to dictate this to a private business. And I'm not familiar with if they've ever done it before, at least in modern America. If private business wants to impose a vaccine mandate on their employees, even on their uh, customers, that's their right they're a private business. I support their right to do that, uh, which is something some in my party have kind of gone away from, which I don't understand. But, you know, those say, well, it's not a VAX mandate because they can do testing. Who's paying for these tests? Because that's a big expense. If an employee doesn't want to, and they've got to get tested, this is kind of like an unfunded mandate. And and the other thing is tests aren't easy to come by. We had a COVID scare with a family member last week, and it took three days to get tested couldn't find a test site so there's just too much to it i'm glad the courts have blocked it i don't think the federal government has the right to do it and i hope this continues but it's pertinent because a it's a loss for the biden administration b they still fight it this is still a narrative for the next election cycle
2: paul you know the federal government has um a duty during a pandemic and a health crisis to, to take action to to try to ameliorate the effects of the health crisis. So that argues in favor of the the mandate. Um, The Biden administration has mandated vaccinations for all kinds of uh, institutions, including the military, where people are unhappy about it. Um, However, uh, however, even as a good Democrat, this to me seems a little, uh, it seems to be on thin ice to mandate um, nationally, for companies, uh, private companies, um, that they institute a vaccine mandate. Um, so I, 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 I wonder about it. I wondered about it when I heard about it, and I'm not surprised that the Fifth Circuit blocked it.
0: Matt, look, for my part, I, <laughs> I actually am going to differ from from both of you. To me, you're not allowed in this country to operate a sweatshop environment. You're not allowed in this country to operate a factory where there are no fire exits because it's too dangerous. We saw this in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire the early 1900s, which led to our health and safety regulations in this country, which most Americans think are a good thing. You can't operate a manifestly dangerous workplace. You can't force people to Go, go mine underground without proper safety equipment, without proper breathing equipment. And the same argument to me extends to how can you operate a workplace where people can catch a deadly disease? When there's a very easy, straightforward and free way to make sure that to a virtual certainty, no one is going to get hospitalized or die. That is the, the nature of the vaccine. And I think what people frequently misunderstand what I absolutely hate the media for getting so wrong all the time is describing the nature of the vaccine. They talk about breakthrough infections and it's kind of attention grabbing. Ooh, a breakthrough infection. Ooh, it sounds like a shield got shattered by this powerful, by this powerful virus. And somehow the vaccine failed. Nothing could be further from the case. That's not what vaccines are about. The vaccine is about making sure you don't go to the hospital or die. And your odds of going to the hospital or dying if you've had the vaccine are extremely low. It matters much, much less whether you manage to get the actual infection. We actually don't even know if you're capable of passing it along all that efficiently if you get the infection. The fact of the matter is, if you have the vaccine, you're almost certainly not going to the hospital And you're almost certainly not going to die. And if we got ourselves up to a 90%, 95% vaccination rate in this country, then the pandemic would be over and we wouldn't have to worry about any of this. And so I guess the question that I would ask is not sort of what are my individual rights? It's what do we owe to each other? To me, what we owe to each other is to not get each other sick not to kill each other's relatives, not to put each other's children in danger. And I think that easily falls within the rights of the federal government, the mandate of the federal government to ensure safe and healthy workplace environments. And the final thing I'll say is that the the journalist Steven Johnson, who's written a number of absolutely fascinating books, one of the best science books ever written, The Ghost Map, which is about the cholera, how, how we learned to do public health, basically, in fighting cholera in London. He has pointed out that over the last 100 years, we have doubled human life expectancy. We have gained what he calls a second life, a second lifetime. I mean, if you think about it, humans live twice as long. A baby born today lives twice as long as a baby born 100 years ago would would be expected to. The major reason, the overwhelming reason is public health measures. It's it's small steps, sanitation, homogenization and pasteurization of milk, making sure that contaminated meat doesn't make it into the food supply and other public health and safety measures. To me, these kinds of things are the very essence of our government's responsibility, why we collectively form a government in a republic. And so I would push back. I am in favor of a workplace even a private sector mandate to get vaccinated. Now, I just talked a lot there, and I'm sure that you both disagree with me. If there's anything you want to say, by all means, jump in. Well,
2: ask nothing. not ask not what your co- you can do for your company. Eh? Ask what your company can do for you. Well, Getting that vaccinated. actually
1: goes into what I was going to say. Um, you pointed out, Matt, things like, uh, exits and no sweatshops, that all deals with what a company has to do to protect the employee. This vaccine, which again, I'm a huge fan of, is going into the individual employee's body. What they It leaves them no choice other than to leave their job. Now, do they have a choice? Yes, but not a choice given to them by their employer, a choice given to them by the government. And that's where the fine line is drawn. And I don't think that the federal government should be mandating anything of a requirement to a private business on something like this where it is personal
2: why isn't this about protecting the employees
1: because in order to protect the employees you have to put something in your body
2: yeah so what the vaccine has been shown to be safe and effective i
1: agree with you but my body my choice paul
2: yeah i know but but my body my choice might hold up but not not people are dying in droves. We've lost over how many? 750,000 people. Infections are on the rise. We have a, we have a a clear epidemic uh, of the unvaccinated. I find, uh, you know, I'm rethinking my position. I'm, I'm capable. I'm capable of, of, uh, of flopping um, and flipping and flopping. And I've done that many times in my career and listening to Matt Robeson's eloquent plea for public safety um, uh, really uh, has moved me, uh, moved me off my, my intellectual dime into the practical application of what do you do, folks? How do you get a pandemic under control unless the federal government, which is formed in order to promote the general welfare, takes up its obligation and says, we're going to promote the general welfare. You get vaccinated, people, uh, because vaccines work. And uh, if you don't believe it, then you're not gonna work here. So Matt Robeson, kudos, you've persuaded Oh, thank you. But- well, let, let me see if I can just try one
0: out. I'm gonna try one out on Alicia. I hear what Alicia's saying. I do, I hear what you're saying. And I, when you frame it that way as, well, if you don't get this, this vaccine in your body, you can't come to work there. So you're not really being given a choice. Let me just flip that around and see if you find this persuasive. What about the situation where you live at home with an elderly parent or grandparent, someone who's immunocompromised, someone who's under the age of five and immunocompromised. And so now your employer can require you as a condition of employment to come to work and thereby be exposed to a deadly virus that you could bring home and kill your child. Wouldn't wouldn't it seem like a fair regulation to say, Okay, if the employer is going to require you to come to work and be exposed to those things, then the employer is obligated to protect you from that environmental risk by making sure that everyone is vaccinated.
1: No, because my employer, as a private business, if my employer says you have to come to work then i have to go to work or find a new job this is the rights of private individuals and private businesses to paul's point what, what he argued was an end justifies the means mentality it, i don't want an ends justifies, justifies the means mentality with the arm of my government with what they're allowed to do there's a lot of things they could do that i mean austria right i think it's austria just did a complete lockdown anybody who doesn't have the vaccine cannot leave their homes. I mean, there are all kinds of things that governments can do that in America, they should have no right to do just because the ends justify the means. I agree with all the social comments about why people should get vaccines. I agree they're effective. I wish 98% of the country would be vaccinated. But philosophically, that doesn't mean I want to give up the freedoms and rights of the private world, whether it's citizens or businesses, to the federal government. Because well, well, it'll help. No, no, no. You can't. You what? What does America look like in twenty years? If it's whatever the government wants to do, as long as you know the pandemic is over, as long as the economic crisis is over, as long as gas prices come down, it's philosophically a terrible argument.
2: Well, you know, it is said in the law that um, hard cases can make bad law, and the pandemic seems to be a particular kind of hard case because people are dying all over the country. People who are unvaccinated are now dying in droves. Now it's the kids they're dying. And the numbers, we're facing a surge in a pandemic. The pandemic is at the root cause of the economic issues that everybody is so worried about. The pandemic is at the root cause of the supply chain issues. It's at the root cause of the inflation issues. The pandemic, which has been with us now for a long time um, and is proving to be virulently resistant to our efforts uh, through vaccination and through um, uh, an easy approach, which is voluntary. don't my my body my choice. The hypocrisy of my body my choice, when people say my body my choice except when it comes to the right of a woman to make her own choice about her body, that hypocrisy wipes out any argument for my body my choice. So if the federal government has the obligation, to promote the general welfare. And we are in the kind of health crisis we are in, a once in a 100-year health crisis. This is not some routine issue. This is not some slippery slope. This is a crisis that is killing Americans every day. If the federal government can't stand up and say, we're going to do something about it, who can and do you want to see more people die? Is that, I mean, no. Of yes, course that's you don't. my goal, Paul. No, yes. it's not your goal. And I don't think it is. But if the federal government can't step in in this circumstance, what power does the federal government have and should it have? Yeah, as much as
0: I want to see Alicia Preston dress up in the full Grim Reaper regalia with Scythe, I know that we promised our listeners a fun political discussion and that was a great political philosophy discussion (laughs) i i want to return i thought it was fun that was super interesting but let's get it let's get into some let's get into some pointless speculation and this is actually real the level of chatter in democratic circles for no reason whatsoever i i can't explain this has just been off the charts over the last week about whether joe biden will run for re-election in 2024 why on earth are we worrying about this now I have not the foggiest notion, but this is a thing. There are articles being written about it. I have people emailing about it. And the question is not just will he run or won't he run, but let's assume for a second that he does not run for reelection. Who is going to be in the running? And is Kamala Harris going to have a free pass as the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party? So Let me start this out in order to make this even handed here, because Alicia is a Republican. I'm not trying to put you in the position of, you know, saying like there's a good outcome, a bad outcome here. But let me just ask the general proposition. What should Democrats be rooting for here? What what is sort of the best case scenario for Democrats and what should they be thinking about?
1: look kamala harris uh, her poll and approval ratings make joe biden look like the most popular president in the last 50 years i mean i think she's down to like 27 percent as vice president she should be the presumed front runner for 2024 if president biden does not run for re-election which i don't think he will um but look people don't want her as vice president they're not going to want her as president um i think you know a lot of what the democrats need depends on what happens to the Republicans. Is Donald Trump going to run? I don't think he is. I'm on the I don't think he is. And i almost talking heads disagree with me. I'm on the I don't think he is. But if he is, what is needed is and you know, an Amy Klobuchar someone who can pull the independents and the disenfranchised Republicans who don't support Donald Trump. But I mean, you're going to look at Stacey Abrams, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, AOC, uh, Joe Kennedy, Gavin Newsom from California. I think this is going to be a huge field if Joe Biden doesn't run. And I think there isn't going to be a Donald Trump in the field. What I mean by that is once Donald Trump announced in the Republican field last time, he was going to run away with it. I don't think that's gonna be the case. And I certainly don't think Kamala Harris is gonna be the answer. Um, although I hope you guys decide she is and run her as your nominee. <laughs> well,
0: do you think there's a little bit of a strain of thought in, among Democrats amidst all this chatter that Kamala Harris has been sort of sabotaged, maybe not intentionally, But the Biden administration has put her in an unenviable position. The main agenda items that she has been handed are voting rights and Northern Triangle country migration, meaning the border, you can call it a crisis or not, depending on your political persuasion. She's been handed immigration and voting rights to stone-cold political losers. Meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg is sitting on top of a virtual monarchy at the transportation department where he gets to just hand out checks and political favors for the next couple of years is Kamala Harris being sabotaged
2: oh ye of little faith you paranoid suspicious people trying trying to make trouble where no trouble exists no she's just doing the bad job that every vice president gets, which are the cast offs, the worst things to do. That's the, that's what a vice presidents do. Um, it, you know, Joe Biden did all that stuff. He had to deal with energy and climate change and he did a little bit on foreign affairs. And the thing about Kamala Harris is we don't we're not hearing much about her, which is what happens with vice presidents we don't hear uh, who it's it's kamala who what's she doing i don't know where is she who knows who cares it's kamala harris the vice president oh yeah remember her um and and nobody does but look the real problem is whether joe biden runs or not right now what democrats are looking at They're looking at a June of this year when senior White House officials promised that rising inflation was just transitory. Janet Yellen was on the radio today saying it's just transitory as soon as we get a hold of the pandemic. Meanwhile, people can't buy bread and fill their cars with gas. In July, Vice President Biden, I mean, I'm sorry, President Biden declared the virus is on the run. And now we're facing a winter surge and people are dying in August Press Secretary Jen Psaki happily declared, the president continues to believe that it is not inevitable that the Taliban will take over. So what's got Democrats and maybe Joe Biden worried are a kind of a little bit of an under delivering, over promising and under delivering. And Democrats are worried that Joe Biden, Joe Biden doesn't really appreciate how bad people are feeling in this country. So, so whether he decides to run or not, um, and it's a long way, 2024 is a long way away. And we may turn it all around and all may be roses and chocolate uh, come, uh, come the midterms. Joe Biden is in for a pretty rough patch right now, his poll numbers, if you pay any attention to that, and who cares, are, are at, could remarkably low levels Um, when people can't fill their cars up and they can't buy bread um, they don't have much patience for the niceties of whether Joe Biden will run or not
0: all right I got to push back here because there are some deep flaws in what you just said there congressman I mean it's not like people can't buy bread for god's sakes the price of food is up five frickin' percent over last uh-uh. year. Uh-uh. No uh-uh. way. Uh-uh. No way. I don't that, care what the that, numbers are. That's well, your I don't effe- care what the
2: numbers say. That's a, your My effe- gut tells no, me. No, 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 Matt. That's your effete Eastern intellectual approach yeah. to, to would grocery shopping. Why No, you actually shopping. look at numbers
1: when you, no, can, no, let me when you
0: things emotionally?
1: No, that's, no let no, me that's give just, you numbers. I went grocery raw shopping Saturday. That's just the raw number. The price of beef, four percent. The price of really because it was $249. Okay, Matt, I go grocery shopping once a week. Now, this is actually kind of irking me because this is the effete intellectuals who don't think it matters. This spring, hamburger, which it always has been. 80-20, Eighty twenty, 20 which is what I buy because I like the higher fat content, was $2.49 a pound. It fluctuated within 20 cents of that for the last two years. I went shopping Saturday. It was $3.49 a pound. That is a dollar more. That is 40% higher. Paper towels, they're not up the 7% or whatever Good Morning America, so they said. They are up for the big thing I buy, $2. They are $12 instead of 10 These are very high numbers. So all these metrics. Now, what well, Good Morning America did it was interesting. They showed why some people don't feel it and others do. And they put up a map and they showed the areas that the inflation is hitting the highest. New England was one of them. New York, not so much. California, not so much. The blue hubs in this country are not feeling it for whatever reason. Maybe it's because they're traffic hubs, but they show the higher inflation is in some of the redder areas, and not New England, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts isn't feeling it quite as hard. So I go to the grocery store. I don't care what numbers econ- economists want to spout out or the morning news. I just went grocery shopping Saturday.
0: I hear what you're saying.
2: Wait a second. A rise of 50 cents in the price of gas in a short period of time is nothing to sneeze at, especially when Americans are driving, still driving huge pickup trucks and trying to fill them. And the difference between $50 and $70 is pretty significant when you're having to commute uh, to your job. If yeah, you, but there's if a big working. difference.
0: There's a big difference between saying people can't get bread. People get this is this is insane, frankly. Oh this is come insane. on. Oh, I think it's. I'm quarterly. Elite. The quarterly increase in inflation was six percent, people, and at the same time, the median bank account has almost doubled over the last year and a half. People are flush with $1.8 trillion in additional savings than they had and, before and the none pandemic. Of it makes I think it, Democrats none of them...
1: should run on this platform. Right. I think for 2022, y'all should keep up this narrative of telling we little folk that our grocery bills don't matter, that it's just 5% because it's no, not. I think, I think a I lot think of you what's should going run on, this. on, though, is... I think you is, should run on this.
0: I think people are, are basically spouting a lot of the party line of like, oh, my gosh, we can't get bread. We're running our cars on bread. But I'm going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. As much fun as I've had in this segment of Balance of Power, we are completely out of time for former two-term Congressman Paul for analyst and political commentator, Richard Preston. I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time on Balance of Power.